Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Hey, yo, everybody, it's Matt Issa, the guy with the shitty basketball takes, or as my buddy Dill likes to call me, the guy who watched Moneyball once and now wants to be the basketball version of Billy Bean. Back again to bring you chapter four of the quest for the best, titled number 32, but in Roman numerals though, to make it more official. Please remember that the first episode of this series, where I set the stage for our grand odyssey and reveal who's getting left out of the big dance, as well as the second and third episodes, where I break down numbers 10 through 7 on our countdown, are all already up on all podcast platforms. And you should definitely check out those before you dive into this piece of work. Anyway, in this episode, we will be unpacking number six and five on my list of the greatest players in NBA history. Timestamps and the link to the article explaining my AOS stat will be included in the description of the episode. So without further ado, I give you the quest for the best. Whatever happens, I want you to know. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. All right, it's time we get really honest with one another. Forget the whole Mark Jackson be great speech. Forget the whole creating the most well-rounded and thorough top 10 list ever created. Forget all of it. The reason I created this whole entire series was just to have a platform where all basketball eyes and ears were on me while I emphatically listed off each and every one of the nicknames associated with number six on our countdown. Pretty pathetic, I know. But the joke's on you, because you're the one enabling this behavior. Anyway, here goes. The Big Shamrock. Hobo Master. The Big Agave. The Big Aristotle. The Big Daddy. Wilt Chamber Neasy. The Real Deal. Witness Protection. Superman. Shaq Daddy. Manny Shackyow. Mayor McShack. The Big Diesel himself. And Shaq is his own unique riddle because if everyone's at their peak and you line up at the playground, that old kind of standard, right? Who are you picking first? I, I don't know. I mean, Why don't you pick Shaq? Okay. Nobody at his peak, he was unstoppable. He, he had a skill set, basically his size and his power that just simply was un, is unmatched in the history of basketball. Thank you, Dan Wetzel. If you are still missing the mark here, you're an idiot. Number six on our countdown of the greatest of all time is the most entertaining person in the history of everything, Shaquille O'Neal. The great philosopher Slim Charles was correct in his observation when he said, the game ain't changed, it just got more fierce. And that was never more obvious than in the case of Shaquille O'Neal. The natural evolution of Will Chamberlain 
Shaq was almost everything Wilt was, but to an even greater degree. He was more physically imposing, more skilled with his footwork, more fluid in his movements, and even more handsome than the Big Dipper himself. Okay, now I'm just fanboying, but you have to admit there's a certain charm about being 7 foot, 350 pounds, and absolutely goofy as shit. A literal basketball mastodon, Shaquille O'Neal physically dominated the game in a manner that the league has never experienced prior to or following the Big Diesel's debut. Shaq's scoring game was almost exclusively limited to the restricted area. Although I probably shouldn't call it much of a limitation, since no player in NBA history was better at getting buckets in the paint. During his prime, Shaq's scoring from the low block was like a Ken Harlson call on a White Sox deep fly ball. Inevitable. That ball hit high and deep. Stretch. At the wall. He looks up. You can put it on the board. Yes. Yes. Throw the ball down to Shaq on the low post. And you can put it on the board. Yes. Two easy points. Sports calls aside, one thing I would constantly ask myself as I watched the low post dinosaurs of that era is, is this guy a death sentence guy? Meaning, if they catch the ball on the low block, is it the equivalent of a death sentence for their man attempting to guard them one-on-one? David Robinson wasn't. Duncan kind of was. Hakeem definitely was. And Shaq, well, he was the motherfucking Grim Reaper. His sheer power was enough to overwhelm even the most prolific defenders of that time period, as even a younger and lighter Orlando Magic Shaq was still probably the strongest player in the NBA. Former Denver Nugget Bryant Stith explained to me that whenever Shaq caught the ball down low, the first thing he would do is ram himself right into the chest of his defender to throw off that player's center of gravity while he was backing them down. This strategy threw off the timing of shot blockers like Bryant's teammate Dikembe Mutombo, who relied on being balanced to set up the timing of their contests. This maneuver became even more lethal when he joined the Lakers and his weight and power reached Bane-like levels. And just like the DC supervillain, Shaq was far more than just a brute who relied on sheer force to execute his war crimes down on the low block. During his prime years, the big shamrock was surprisingly nimble and possessed great footwork and a wide array of scoring moves. The most featured and easily the most devastating move in Shaq's arsenal was his drop step. How it worked was he'd fight for a deep position in the post, receive the entry pass, normally from the left side of the court, barrel his chest into the defender like we talked about earlier, take a couple dribbles, fake like he's going right, and then immediately he spins in the opposite direction and yams it down on whichever sorry soul is in his path. The reason this move is so effective, other than the fact that he's fucking Shaq, is because defenders have to respect his fake to the right from the fear of Shakovich utilizing some of his other signature moves like his jump hook or two-step layup. That jump hook of his is also disastrous in its own right. Master Shaq was very versatile with it, able to release it from either of his hands at different angles and from multiple spots around the rim. The moral of all of this is that there's just so much more nuance to Shaq's scoring game than him just getting the ball, slamming it down on the ground a couple of times, and dunking it on whoever's in front of him. Although he could do that if he wanted to as well. Now, I refer to Shaq as the more ferocious version of Wilt because of the differences in their off-ball movement and gravity. 
Where Will would kind of freelance around the paint, waiting for an entry pass to start unleashing his attack on the defense, Shaq was constantly battling for deep position on the low block. One of Shaq's favorite things to do was position himself for a post seal, where he would basically be boxing out his defender while also making himself available to receive a pass from the perimeter. If the pass is delivered properly, this move all but guarantees Shaq two easy points at the rim. The relentlessness he displayed without the basketball also made him a great offensive rebounder, finishing second among all the all-time greats behind Moses Malone. In summary, his off-ball movement along with his paint mastery led to Shaq possessing the greatest interior rim gravity in NBA history. His mere presence in the restricted area forced defenders to stay close by in order to help at a moment's notice, which led to high percentage open shots on the perimeter for his teammates throughout his prime. In the earlier portion of his career, when he was a little lighter, Shaq was also frequently utilized as a roll man in the pick and roll, where he might as well have been Miley Cyrus the way he swung down the lane. Shaq also had gravity as a lob finisher, where he used his good hands and timing on his jumps to catch and finish lobs with regularity. And overall, this collection of skills made O'Neal virtually unguardable in any one-on-one -on -one setting within 10 feet of the rim, and as a result, led to him getting double-teamed more than probably anyone in NBA history. Which leads me to the next part of our analysis, the big Maravich's passing. Not really asked to do much primary creation on offense, most of the big man's passing came from out of the double-team, where I'd say he fared pretty well. He was always really good at hitting open guys on the strong side of the perimeter on standard double-teams. His ability to hit advanced reads improved from his time with the Magic when he frequently and noticeably missed cutters under the rim. But by the turn of the century, Shaq was hitting those cutters and even flinging some cross-court passes to the weak side perimeter shooters while donning the purple and gold. When comparing him to the all-time greats in this area, I put him right around David Robinson level, which puts him higher than the dream, but a solid tier below guys like Duncan and Garnett. The biggest weakness I noticed in his decision making was that once the big man had made the decision he was going to score instead of pass out, he didn't have the ability to deviate from that choice if the defense revealed something different from what he initially read. A perfect example of this is that 2004 finals we talked about earlier against the Pistons. Larry Brown would often start out playing Shaq straight up with Banner Sheed, and midway through Shaq's attack at the rim, the Wallace bro that wasn't initially on Shaq would spring out and help contest the big man's shot attempt. But even with this limitation in his judgment, Shaq's passing is enough where, when combined with his insane scoring and off-ball gravity, he has a very compelling case as the greatest offensive big man in NBA history. The question now becomes, how much of a positive or a negative was he at the other end of the court? Much has been said about how Shaq would struggle defensively in today's game because of the high volume of ball screens and the amount of switching that is required from big men. Those people aren't wrong. Even during his playing days, Shaq struggled when teams challenged him in the high pick and roll, most notably against the Blazers in the 2000 Western Conference Finals. The big field general wouldn't even bother stepping up to contest shooters at times. The thing is, though, as former NBA scout Steve Henson pointed out to me, that isn't really what teams were doing back then. So, a big man didn't have to be good at those things. Big men just needed to be able to contest and deter shots at the rim and bang with the other bigs in the post. And for the most part, Shaq could do just that. 
In his prime, Shaq put up elite level shot blocking numbers, hovering right around 5-6% block percentage in his best years. He also did a pretty solid job of deterring shots at the rim altogether, which is a good mark of a good rim protector. Shaq's gargantuan frame also proved very useful when defending guys on the post. Shaq held up really well there, although part of this could be because he was often matched up against the team's least skilled offensive big. This strategy was probably in place to allow Shaq to focus on bothering drives to the rim and to help conserve Diesel's gas tank for offense. Speaking of that help defense, Prime Shaq was solid in that regard, but definitely a clear cut below the all-time greats as he lacked Elijah Wan and Robinson's reaction time speed and Duncan's positional savvy. This gets me to the topic of defensive IQ, which, in the case of the big Aristotle, was nothing noteworthy. I wouldn't say he had bad IQ, he made really good, predictive reads from time to time. But on the other hand, he also got caught ball watching at times, and that, along with his low motor, which we'll unpack more a little later on, led to some pretty bad defensive blunders. Probably the biggest knock on Shaq's interior defense was his inability at times to contest shots without fouling. Where Duncan has nearly as many blocks as fouls for his career, Shaq has nearly 1,400 more fouls than blocks for his career. Part of this disparity stems from the fact that Shaq just has so much mass on him that it's easier for players to create contact with him and draw fouls. But I'd say most of this could be chalked up to Shaq lacking the more refined skills that all-time rim protectors possess, Things like good jump timing and positioning, the ability to locate the ball in shot attempts, and the ability to contest shots after they leave the offensive player's hands. One huge indirect positive Shaq brought to the table as a defender was the fact that teams often had to employ large, unskilled big men, you know, the Todd McCulloch's and Desana Dops of the world, just to try and bang with him, which led to those teams sacrificing some offensive potential on the floor just to try and handle Shaquille O'Neal. Despite Shaq's mobility and technicality deficiencies, teams could still build elite-level defenses with the big man as their anchor. In 1999-2000, the Lakers finished first in the NBA in defensive efficiency. And he was also part of multiple other top 10 defenses with both the Lakers and the Heat, which tells me Shaq can defend well in a team construct. On offense, writer Jared Dubin summarizes it best. Shaq was an amplifier, not a creator. What he means by this is, Shaq's offensive game scales incredibly well because he doesn't monopolize the ball with long, methodical, inefficient post-ups. I'm looking at you, Will. His attacks at the rim are swift and effective, which is why he's able to go to the finals with not one, not two, but three different ball-dominant guards during his prime. Shaq was an offensive focal point on a number one ranked Orlando offense in 1994-95, four number two ranked offenses in LA, two before Bryant was even in his prime, and the fifth best offense in the NBA in 2004-2005 on the Miami Heat. Shaq's scoring volume is ahead of any of the all-time big men, and his efficiency is only matched by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. In the playoffs, despite seeing a dip in his efficiency, Shaq's volume increases to a level that historically is only surpassed by Michael Jordan, aka the absolute gold standard for postseason scoring. Now, I intentionally saved this for last, but I want to debunk some misconceptions about Shaq's free throw shooting. His free throw attempt rates for both the regular season and the playoffs are firmly above every all-timer in NBA history, 
And despite some people believing otherwise, even his own coaches at times, his free throw shooting was not really that much of an issue. Before he fell off production-wise in 2006, Shaq shot free throws at a 52.6% rate, which equals about 1.05 points per possession. Guess what the league averages in points per possession during that 14-year period from 1992 to 2006? 1.05. So that means that Hackashack only led to Shaq's teams producing at a league average outcome. That's not great. Definitely worse than the GOAT level 1.16 points per possession Shaq was normally good for when he shot the ball in his prime, but also still not a crutch. Anyways, moving over to accolades, Shaq's AOS score of 130 puts him at 9th all-time in the stats database. For his career accolades, we have a 4-time NBA champion, 3-time finals MVP, 1-time league MVP, 2-time MVP runner-up, a 14-time All-NBA guy, three-time all-defensive player, 15-time all-star, two-time scoring champ, and a five-time PER leader. It's also very, 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 very important that everyone knows that Shaq should have been the first unanimous MVP in history in 1999-2000, if not for that damn Philly beat writer. Dinkelberg. All right. Now let's push all the numbers to the side and hear the storybook explanation for why Shaq is where he is in Matt's grandiose basketball pantheon. Whether it be writer Louis Zatzman saying that the big man's dominance single-handedly forced the league to eradicate the conditions that fostered such a human cheat code, Yahoo Sports' Dan Wetzel telling me he'd pick peak Shaq first in the pickup game of all-time greats, or Harrison Fagan prematurely crowning Shaq as the winner of the hypothetical Time Machine one-on-one tournament. Everyone I spoke with told the same story. Shaq was something else entirely. And these types of declarations are not exclusive to NBA media members fawning over the sheer unlikelihood of a human being possessing that type of combination of size and skill. Even former NBA players admitted to being in awe of the immovable force that was Shaquille O'Neal. Here is former NBA player and current Pelicans GM, Trajan Langdon, describing his experience trying to rip the ball from Shaq's hands. Well, I fortunately never had to guard him. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in the, in the times that we played against him, there were a couple games that I played rotationally. And um, I've never seen or been around a bigger human being um, who was that agile and impactful in the game of basketball because his ability, I mean, he's so big. He, he was immovable inside, but he had incredible footwork, huge hands, obviously long arms, could really, really run when he wanted to run, um, was quick off the floor, the combination of those things, um, you just don't find uh, 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 an athlete that has that size and can move with that speed and have that agility. And, uh, you know, you go down and he would have the ball in the post and he would expose it and you would swipe down as hard as you could and you'd think you'd get in the strip and the ball just wouldn't move. And I remember going down there one time and trying to get the ball and the ball it, it just it was like the ball just would not come out of his hands it wouldn't even budge and I think if you go back I would be 
it'd be interesting to see how many times he got actually stretched inside from a guard or a big coming down. So I just don't think it happened that much. So just the sheer force of power that he had um, was was remarkable. Something I've never gotten close to experience or seeing in my in my years playing. Okay. Now, here is retired NBA player Speedy Claxton talking about his former playoff opponent. It's a high old man because you're like this. Wow, this guy is huge. But then he's agile. So you're like this. How can somebody this big be able to move like this on a basketball court? So, you know, going up against Shaq, I remember the first time seeing him in person. I'm like this. Wow, this dude looks even bigger in person. And he's not just tall, but he has girth on him also so i was like wow this dude is really massive man like i, I remember i going in for a lab and i just hit him and bounced right off him. i'm like oh my god this is crazy <laughs> and here is one last clip this from former nba player bo outlaw standing at six foot eight i joke with bo that he was probably the tallest person i interviewed with for this series even he was still in disbelief at shaq's majestic frame i've been knowing him since high school so he is a different dude, meaning when I first met him, I think we were in 10th grade and he walked in the gym and I was like, whoa, like back then you never saw nobody that big. That was in the, geez, like that was, you weren't even born. That was like in the 80s. So he walked in the gym. I'm like, golly. So he comes in and that's when it, that's when it starts. Uh, playing against him in the NBA. He was still, the, the younger Shaq was still running up and down the court, being athletic and still strong and physical and dominating. Uh, that guy, I say that guy Shaq, was the guy who commanded a double team. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to double. It's like when we're going to double. Because if you let him get too deep, it's a problem. Very rarely was there a guy who can guard him one-on-one. You had your guys, probably Ben Wallace later in his career. Mm-hmm. Dennis Robin, you know, they had their battles. Uh, Kimbe would try to guard him, Patrick Ewan, Lonzo Morning. But as you notice, all those guys are seven foot plus. So when you have seven footers trying to guard him, it was, he won most of those battles. Those are NBA freaking players, man. Yeah, it's one thing if Matt Issa at five foot nine calls Shaq a monster. But do you know how athletically gifted you have to be to be in the NBA? These guys were that talented in their own right and still believe Shaq to be in an entirely different stratosphere physically. This all leads me to say that the narrative reason that Shaquille O'Neal deserves his spot at number six on our countdown is because he was the most physically dominant athlete in the history of American sports. That's right. Not just in NBA history, but American sports as a whole. If you really think about it, who else would it be? There's only really two other guys who come to mind here, and that's Bo Jackson and Barry Bonds. In Bo's case, the freak ball and socket injury thing inhibits him from meeting the necessary threshold to be considered for this type of designation, while in Bonds' case, his physical supremacy may have possibly been aided by some external supplements. Okay, probably was aided by some extracurricular dietary decisions. Okay, absolutely, most definitely was juicing. Like, come on, man. You aren't fooling anyone with that breakfast bullshit. Your goddamn neck was wider than your quads, dude. 
So yeah, Shaq is the greatest physical anomaly in the history of sports and the sixth greatest player in NBA history. Now time for the why hire. I've kind of been subtly angling this argument with most of my why below arguments up to this point. But like I already said, I'm always going to take a good easy shot getter over even the best tough shot makers. And the thing about Shaq is that he's not only a good easy shot getter, he's the all-time best easy shot getter. The whole most physically dominant athlete thing made it so literally almost every shot he took was a relatively easy one. He's the only guy I will ever watch float a right-hand hook over three defenders and still sit there and say, yeah, that right there, that's a high percentage look. Good fucking possession. The numbers back this up as well as he has the best relative effective field goal percentage of any of the all-time greats with a whopping plus 10. And the reason I put him over the two-way big men we talked about earlier is because while they may have been superior defenders, Shaq does just enough with his impact on that end of the floor that his all-time offensive production leapfrogs him over those guys. Sean Grandi agrees with me on this as well as he told me, you have a better chance of taking away great defenders by using decoys to take them out of the play than you do of slowing down great offensive players. Must be a smart guy if he agrees with me. So what's keeping Shaq from cracking the top five? All right, it's finally time we address the most controversial part of Shaq's game, and that's his abhorrent violation of one of the seven deadly sins, gluttony. Beginning right around the time he joined the Lakers, Shaq struggled heavily with keeping his weight at a manageable number. And while overblown by some, it most definitely negatively affected his conditioning. This was most visible in his efforts on the defensive end. Like I said earlier, Shaq had trouble defending the high pick and roll. And it's not because he had slow feet or poor instincts. It's because he was just too gassed to give a consistent effort out on the perimeter. I know this because on the few possessions Shaq did really buckle down, he was able to hold his own out there, but he just had to pick his spots because his conditioning wasn't up to par. Towards the end of his career, this even affected his offense, as for instance, all throughout the 2005 Eastern Conference Finals, Shaq's scoring, after starting out strong, would take a drastic dip as the game went on, and this was almost certainly because Shaq was breaking down from the lack of proper physical conditioning. I'm not saying that he needed to build marathon runner endurance, but None of the five players that finish above O'Neal ever allowed their bodies to get in as compromising of a position as he did. I still love you though, Shaq, and you're definitely the funniest guy in NBA history, and if you were listening right now, I would love the chance to just drink a beer with you and talk about your ranking on this quest. I swear I hear you out, but you're just not top five, man. You're, you're just not that guy. Hey, Quest listeners. We wanted to take a quick break from our journey to give a shout-out to one of the sponsors of this limited series, Retroshaded. At its core, the quest for the best is 10 stories of extraordinary individuals overcoming great obstacles and defying all odds. That makes Retroshaded, a brand built on resiliency and the determination to never give up, the perfect partner for this series. During a rough stretch in his life, the company's CEO and founder, Trevor Macklem, was looking for his purpose— and at the time, the only thing that brought him joy was snowboarding with his brothers. He began obsessively researching the history of the sport to the point that he even started wearing retro-style sunglasses similar to the ones that one of the sport's pioneers, Craig Kelly, wore as he was snowboarding down the slopes all over the world. 
And after receiving a lot of attention while wearing them at a local resort, Trevor realized that there was an opportunity for him to find his purpose. But more importantly, he realized he had a chance to spread to others the sense of inspiration those sunglasses gave him. And just like that, Retroshaded was born. Fast forward to today, and Retroshaded now serves as a symbol of hope and determination for thousands of people all across the country. With over 30 different styles and colors to choose from, Retroshaded has something for everyone. Visit their website, retroshaded.com today, and pick out a premium pair of sunglasses that are just right for you, without breaking the bank. Listeners of the series get an additional 20% discount by using the code QUEST20 checkout. Visit retroshaded.com and join the community of hope and inspiration today. Now back to our limited series. And we are back. So, full transparency here. The next player on our countdown is dedicated to my old man, who throughout this arduous process of crafting this series has, along with my mother, supported me emotionally and financially to an extent that I personally can never repay. This project couldn't have been completed without all the love and nurture you both provided me with. So, thank you. And I love you guys. Anyway, number five is and always will be my father's favorite player. He's the reason I fell in love with the old school game and may or may not have factored into my own college decision process. That one's off the record, though. However, Apart from the personal attachments I have to this legend, his game undeniably speaks for itself. I'll even go as far as to say that being cognizant of my own bias for him led to me more thoroughly scrutinizing his case than I did for any other player on this list. And lo and behold, every stat I looked at, game I watched, or person I spoke with painted the same picture. This dude is one of the five greatest players who ever lived. To announce number five in our quest for the best, I'm going to turn things over to my friend, who I get to call my friend because I made him laugh once during our interview, Coach Mike Woodson. Well, just put it this way. If I'm going to start my basketball team, I'm starting it with Magic Johnson at the one, running the show. (laughs) I think, you know, a lot of players that, you know, and I played, I started playing against Magic in college when he was at Michigan state. And I think the one thing that just pops out, he wins, he knows how to win, you know, and and it's kind of followed him throughout his career. He's a winner and he makes players around him better. Magic Johnson. Basketball Casanova and the conductor of the fastest running locomotive in the history of professional sports Magic Johnson was the basketball equivalent of Kurt Warner in that he was the quarterback of what very well may have been the greatest offensive dynasty in the history of the sport. The origins of Seth Parnow's whole concept of heliocentrism can be traced back to this Laker icon. Magic crawled so other ball-handling wings like LeBron James, Luka Doncic, and Cade Cunningham could walk. He was the ball-dominant supernova offensive creator before it was even in vogue. His offensive style was so effective and his package of skills was so complete that it made you wonder if, in the case of this evolutionary arc, was the first iteration its apex? Was Magic Johnson the best offensive player the game has ever seen? Let's start with his passing, which as George Mason head coach Kim English described, bordered on the supernatural. 
I made the distinction last episode that where Bird predicted passing openings, Magic and LeBron used their size and strength to create them. This statement is definitely true, but it misses some of the more creative elements of Magic's wizardry. Magic definitely benefited from an elevated view of the floor and his ability to almost muscle himself into double teams, but he also performed a variety of bombastic body maneuvers to help himself manipulate the pieces on the board to his advantage. Whether it be high jump kicks every time he drive to the rim before dropping the ball to a cutter underneath, his exaggerated eyebrows raised mouth wide open no look dimes, the way he'd seemingly wave the ball on a platter in front of a defender while on the move before deciding whether to fling it to a cutter or take it to the rack himself, or my personal favorite, when he'd unwind his cannon to launch his supersonic fastball, a pass that could fit into literally any window. It was his ability to execute a sorcerer's bag of tricks and deceptions, combined with his elite level finishing around the rim, that made Magic Johnson quite possibly the most dangerous player in transition in the history of the league. He differed from Bird in his approach to this element of the game, where upon rebounding the ball, Bird would look for an outlet pass to start the break. Magic took the reins of the purple and gold chariot into his own hands, grabbing the ball and galloping down the court like a fierce knight. Even when zooming down the court at top speed, he still had the ability to read the defense and make lightning quick decisions on whether to pass or score, lethal in whichever he chose. The Lakers' defense didn't even need to force a miss to get Showtime rolling. Magic could push the pace on makes too, as he used his elongated strides and insane gravitational pull as he was hurtling towards the rim to cause unrest among the defense and advantageous opportunities for his teammates. His proficiency in transition constituted a novel interpretation of the Second Amendment right to bear arms. No founding father could have ever accounted for the firepower of a fully automatic EMJ. He was equally as capable when the game slowed down. In the half court, he surveyed the court in an Orwellian manner. During the countless number of games of his I went back and watched for this series, I can count on one hand the amount of times when I noticed an opening in the defense manifest itself, which wasn't immediately followed by Magic rifling a pass in that direction. He could find breakdowns in coverages and create them on his own with his bolt rushes to the rim and big man-like post-ups. We already discussed his finishing skills, but his post-game was a lot more refined than most people gave him credit for. During his peak, when Magic received the ball on the low block, he was kind of like Joey Gallo at the plate in that he was a three true outcomes player. However, unlike in baseball, none of these situations plays out favorably for the defense. Either, number one, you leave Magic and his man on an island and he scores because he's either too big or too strong or too fast for whoever's guarding him. Two, he draws a foul because, like I said, he's a walking mismatch. Or three, you double team him, which is probably the worst outcome of them all. Remember how I said Duncan was the best all-time big man at passing out of the double team? Well, Magic was the best at passing out of doubles, period. Like Duncan, Magic had the patience and intellect necessary to accept the double team and let his progressions play out. However, unlike Duncan, Magic also had court omniscience and a robust passing lexicon at his fingertips, making him potentially the greatest decision maker from the low block the league has ever seen. You could literally create a whole offense centered around just giving Johnson the ball on the low block. And at times, during the late 80s and early 90s, the Lakers did just that. I remember watching Game 3 of their 1991 first round series against the Houston Rockets, 
and witnessing this very offensive game plan that I just outlined take place, and guess what? It worked perfectly. Some may even say magically. I will qualify all my praise about his passing by adding that Magic did have some pretty high turnover rates. At times, that trusty fastball we mentioned would look less like one of the most iconic passes in history and more like one of a younger Aroldis Chapman's pitches. Way too fast and wildly inaccurate. It wasn't too much of an issue though, as his heater worked for him way more often than it didn't, and nearly all of the all-time great playmakers turned the ball over a bunch anyways, so it's not really that important. Magic was never an incredible outside shooter, and like LeBron, teams would regularly sag off Johnson and try to make him beat them with his jumper. While I don't have reliable data available on his mid-range shooting splits, I can still say that judging from his career relative true shooting of plus 7.5, which puts him on par with Durant and just a notch below Steph Curry for their careers, that he was good enough to make defenders pay when they did give him some space. Towards the end of his prime, I'd even say he became a really good shooter, knocking down 34% of his threes from 88 to 91, which is about 2% higher than the league average for the time, and he accomplished this feat on high volume for the era at about three three-pointers per game. The one hole people try to poke in Magic's offensive game is that he needed the ball in his hands to be successful, and he had very little to offer in the way of off-ball value. I push back on this kind of criticism because, like we saw this past year with James Harden in Brooklyn, supremely talented offensive players are able to find a way to be impactful in many different situations and roster constructions. And I feel that Magic's high IQ, outside shooting, and interior gravity would allow Magic to scale well on other teams where he was required to play a less ball-dominant role. But I do have to ask, with an offensive profile like his, why the hell wouldn't you want the ball in his hands as much as possible? Let's face it, no matter how many different microscopes you put his game under, you will have a hard time pinpointing a true weakness in the Magic Man's offensive game. But just like the very large man he edges out on our countdown, offense wasn't really the thing getting in the way of his quest for the top spot. It was his defense. If I didn't make it abundantly clear last episode, it's pretty obviously bird over magic defensively. Both tasked with filling the role of roaming free safety who quarterbacks the defense, provides help at the nail and disrupts the passing lanes, Bird was just a little bit better at pretty much every aspect of defense than number 32. Let's go row by row here. Alright, so first category, point of attack defense. Bird obviously lacked lateral quickness, but Magic was just like really stiff and could never get into a functional enough defensive stance to keep up with quicker guards and forwards. It's fortunate for him he had great perimeter defenders like Byron Scott, Michael Cooper, and Norm Nixon to enable him to avoid compromising situations from the post. Now, looking at disrupting the passing lanes, Magic had a slightly higher steal percentage and both of them did their fair share of gambling for steals. But I would say that Magic whiffed on those gambles more often than Bird did, so point goes to Larry here again. In help defense, Magic was really positionally sound and did a great job of leveraging his length to close off driving lanes at the nail, 
But he did get caught either missing a rotation or ball watching a little too much for my liking. In comparison, this area of the floor was Bird's bread and butter and the reason he was a three-time all-defensive selection. If you're keeping score, that's 3-0 Bird. Post-defense? Part of the reason Bird was able to be a slight positive defender post-debilitating back injuries is because he was strong enough to hold up decently well against forwards out there. The Lakers didn't really put Magic in too many post situations, but from what I did observe, he didn't put up as much resistance as you'd expect from a guy who's 6'9", 220 pounds. So that's 4-0. Now rim protection? This will always be really freaking weird to me, but Magic was just not a good rim protector at all. You'd think someone with his height and length could cause a little more disruption down there, but no, I guess not. Bird wasn't making anyone think twice about going down there either, but was still just a tad bit better than Johnson. 5-0. Finally, defensive rebounding. Both were great defensive rebounders for their size and position, which was essential to their transition brilliance. But yet again, Bird is just a little bit better. His incredible anticipatory skills helped him predict which direction the ball would bounce and allowed him to time his jump accordingly, and as a result, Bird sweeps Magic here 6 to nothing. This all makes sense considering Bird was a three-time All-League defender and a contributor on five top-five defenses. Although, I will admit it probably didn't help Magic that Kareem's best defensive days were behind him by the time Johnson arrived in Los Angeles. And this is evident in the fact that the Lakers' best defense during Magic's 12-year run came in the 90-91 season, after Kareem retired. I will also say that while Johnson was the inferior defender between the two, he definitely had a switch he could turn on when he needed to. And when he did, he displayed the same kind of breathtaking IQ and spatial understanding that made him such an unbelievable player on the offensive end of the court. A great example of this that sticks out in my head really weirdly for some reason is in the 1986 Western Conference Finals where he's guarding Hakeem in the low block and he knew he was at a disadvantage, so he fronted him in the post to try and bait the Houston forward, Robert Reed, to throw the pass in front of Elijah Wan. Reed, of course, did just that. In the moment the ball leaves Reed's hands, Magic spins around Hakeem and snatches the ball. Pretty awesome, right? Just one really like small, super specific example, and it didn't really happen often, but there is a handful of possessions just like that that demonstrate a more cerebral element to Magic's game. Hence the high steal rate like we talked about with Kobe a few chapters ago. Going back to that 1990-91 season, LA finished 5th in overall defensive efficiency, which was the highest ranking of the entire Showtime era. Still, the Lakers weren't ever a bad defensive team only finishing outside of the top 10 in defensive efficiency once from 1979 to 91. That, for me, is enough to show that Magic led teams that can do enough on that end to hold down the fort while their offense carries them to victory. And that's another solid segue over to the next topic of this discussion. Earlier I told you the Showtime Lakers may have been the greatest offensive dynasty in NBA history. Well, they were. During their 12-year run, they finished first in offensive efficiency seven times and second twice more. They finished outside of the top five in this measure only once, 
And get this, two of their five best offensive seasons came in 86-87 and 88-89 when Kareem was already well over the hill. And another one of their five best years came in 89-90, without Kareem on the roster at all. Magic could lead all-time level offenses as a facilitator alongside other Hall of Famers or as the main offensive focal point himself. And do you know how he was able to do this? I gave you guys my scouts on our last episode. I wouldn't do this, but who gives a shit because it's the truth. Magic Johnson is the greatest passer and more than likely the greatest creator in NBA history. How do I know this? Well, for one, literally all the reasons I just pointed out to you for the last half episode. But if that's not enough, check out these three stats. For his career... Johnson averages 14.5 assists per 100 possessions, a number only surpassed by John Stockton among all-time great playmakers. During his peak from 1989 to 91, Magic was creating an average of 12 to 13 open shots for his teammates per 100 possessions, according to Ben Taylor's box creation stat. Those numbers are unheard of for any player in history prior to the offensive explosion created by the 7 seconds or less Phoenix Suns. In my last stat, staying with the Ben Taylor stuff, remember that passer rating stat I referenced in my Hakeem breakdown? Magic scored at least a 9.7 out of 10 in this stat five times in his career, peaking at a score of 9.9 out of 10, ironically enough in the year 1984. You can't make this stuff up, guys. To put this into context, though, think about all the all-time great passers in NBA history. Larry Bird, LeBron James, John Stockton, Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, Chris Paul, and Isaiah Thomas. None of these guys have ever had one season like that. One. Magic had five seasons like that. Just think about that. And lastly, his playoff scoring volume and efficiency take a slight dip, but his true shooting numbers still leave him in the upper echelon of efficiency for primary creators among all-time greats. To put this all together, when you mix Magic's passing, creation for others, efficient scoring from both the inside and out, transition prowess, and big man level free throw rates, you have a recipe for what is, by my estimation, the greatest offensive player in the history of the game. Now for his accolades. While it was gluttony that got Shaq, it was lust that ultimately hurt Magic's longevity. Still, despite his career being cut short, Magic was able to amass quite the award profile. He's a five-time champ, three-time finals MVP, three-time regular season MVP, two-time MVP runner-up, 10-time All-NBA selection, 12-time All-Star, four-time assist king, and a two-time steals leader. All this adds up to Magic scoring a 148.5 in AOS, which puts him 7th all-time in NBA history. A nice little wrinkle here is if you factor Magic's 1979 NCAA championship win over Larry Bird, Magic won 6 championships and has 10 finals appearances in a 13-year span. That means he went to the finals at least 77% of the time. That's higher than MJ and LeBron. Hell, that's even higher than Tom Brady. You know how everyone loves citing the stat that 
Brady has a better chance of getting the Super Bowl than Steph does of hitting a three? Well, listen to this. LeBron James is a career 73% free throw shooter. That means Magic had a better chance of reaching the finals than LeBron did of hitting an uncontested 15-foot shot. Think about that. What is that horrible smell? Is Patrick thinking again? Not thinking, Art! Patrick, it smells like something crawled in your brain and died. That's the creative process at work! And this leads me right to our anecdotal argument. Everyone loves a great leader. A person whose confidence and charisma has the power to unite a group of individuals to become more than the sum of their parts. Ray Lewis, Wayne Gretzky, my buddy Sean's hero, Derek Jeter, who, by the way, A-Rod may be better than. Irvin Magic Johnson is that character in the story of the NBA. He's the Kurt Russell figure, galvanizing the troops before the biggest match of their lives. He's the kind of person you'd go to war for. He's the person who makes you believe you can win. Kareem was incredible and the Lakers as an organization had already won six titles before 1980. But they didn't become the greatest franchise in NBA history until the moment they used the first overall pick of the 1979 draft to select a fiery young 19-year-old from Lansing, Michigan, fresh off of a national championship. The Magic Man wasted no time leaving his imprint on the league as he earned himself a title and a finals MVP before he was even legally old enough to drink. From there, the success only continued. Over the next decade plus, the Purple and Gold became one of the greatest dynasties in the history of professional sports. Slaying dragons like Gervin Spurs, Dr. J76ers, Hakeem's Rockets, Drexler's Blazers, those pesky late 80s Mavs, poor Alex English, the bad boy Pistons, and their greatest rival of them all, the Boston Celtics to the tune of five total NBA championships. They did it all with Johnson orchestrating the symphony. From Bird to Jordan, Johnson's combination of offensive mastery and Don Draper-like confidence made him a match for seemingly any opponent, and as a result, made his teams a title contender every year of his prime. Do you remember how I spent a huge part of last episode talking about how important the Magic and Bird rivalry was to the game of basketball? Well, how about this? Not only was Johnson one half of the greatest rivalry in the history of the league, he was the better half. How do I know this? Well, I mean, I did spend the last eight months researching it and have the data to prove it. But even more convincing than my testimony, the three guys in the world who knew Bird's game best of all all said so. Bill Simmons, Bob Ryan, and Larry Joe Bird himself. Larry Bird famously told reporters after a devastating finals loss to the Lakers that, quote, Magic's just a really great basketball player. He's the best I've ever seen, you know? Then he paused for a moment, looked down at his microphone in despair, like a child being told by their parents that their favorite holiday mascot was Fugazi. It's not fucking real. And proceeded to say, quote, he's unbelievable. When I asked Bob about who was the better between the two, he paused for a moment and gave me that, well, fuck, Bird's kind of like a son. Are you really going to make me say it, look? Then he smiled and said both were all-timers, but Magic was just a little bit better. Then finally, 
The self-proclaimed guru, Bill Simmons, wrote this in his famous manifesto, The Book of Basketball. We remember them as equals, even though Magic's prime lasted three extra years. Just know that I spent both Reagan terms rooting against Magic, calling him a choker and arguing Bird's merits until my face was blue. And then Magic captured my eternal respect after the baby skyhook and his December buzzer beater in the garden that same year. It wasn't that Magic made those shots as much as my reaction as he was taking them. My heart sank even as the ball was drifting towards the basket. Not even the biggest Celtics fan on the planet could deny it any longer. Magic was just as exceptional as Larry Bird. There you have it. No more needs to be said. Magic Johnson, the greatest leader and better half of the ultimate courtship of rivals, is the fifth greatest player in NBA history. Okay, so how did Johnson crack the top half of our countdown? One of the questions I asked my interviewees was, if you had to start a team from scratch, which player archetype do you think is the easiest to build a champion around? A two-way impact big man or an offensive supernova creator? And while there was a good rationale provided by those who chose the former, a majority of interviewees said they think it's easier to fill your roster out with an offensive supernova creator as your main building block. One of my favorite answers came from the legend himself, Dean Oliver. I mean, in general, offense, you can separate yourself better than you can on defense. Uh, it's, it's just kind of the nature of the game. The, uh, and I think it's not only the nature of basketball, it's the nature of a lot of sports. A lot of defense in general is team defense. You do need help with that. Whereas in basketball, with one with a ball, I mean, one player if they are incredibly skilled, can dominate a lot. And I think that that has been the case. Uh, I don't see it changing. Uh, as much as I love defense and I, I like, I think people undervalue defensive players a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're just talking more objectively, offensive players are more likely to achieve that level of dominance on its, in a league. So in using that line of reasoning, I'm going to take the best offensive player in history over the two-way impact of guys like Duncan Shaq and Olajuwon. Also, we already did the bird thing, but if you want a more statistical argument for it, here's this. Magic has bird beat and longevity. He's the better playmaker between the two. And Johnson's playoff scoring is more resilient and efficient because unlike bird, he can consistently rely on his size and speed to help him create high-percentage shots. So, what's keeping him from our Final Four? Well, it's actually not longevity. Johnson obviously didn't play as long as he should have, but his 12 highly productive years aren't that far off from the 14 highly productive years you get from Shaq and Olajuwon, or the 15 you get from Kobe. What's stopping Magic from advancing to the next checkpoint on our quest is his defense. There is a reason he's the only player on our list that doesn't have an all-defensive team selection. Even the most charitable evaluation of Magic's defense doesn't paint him as anything more than a net neutral or even an ever-so-slight net positive on that end of the floor. That impact proved to be enough to help him and the Lakers win five NBA championships, but in the end... 
It also limited Magic to only number five on our countdown. Poor Magic. Only the fifth greatest player in NBA history. How will he ever survive? And with that, Chapter 4 has now come to a close. 6 and 5 are now no longer a secret. Two purple and gold legends. One a lifer, the other was just passing by. Both all-time greats. Still, there is somehow four players in NBA history greater than both of them. Who are those four? You dying to know? Well, how about I cut a deal with you? Turn your device off and come back in a week, and I will tell you two of them. Do it again, come back in a week again, and I'll tell you the other two. Unless, of course, you're from the distant future, then you can just binge the whole series right now. Hopefully I'm employed by then. Anyways, tune in next week for Chapter 5, Quest for the Best. <laughs>